Welcome to Off Hours, a conversation between John Edwards and Chris Manning. This video you sent me just before the show is wild. We talked about uh, Google to one gear ratios a, a couple episodes back, back in episode 61. And uh, you have sent me a, a Google to one gear ratio built entirely out of Lego. Yeah, we clearly weren't the only people who had seen that video because this guy obviously dug through his entire collection of Lego to to build one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it kind of makes me wonder. I certainly thought there was a probably a connection of, of some sort there, whether it's like a fan of his channel prompting him to, to make this or whether he, he saw the same videos that you had passed along before the, the Google to one gear ratios done up in, in metal. But uh, yep. doing this in plastic, it's uh, surreal. I wouldn't have thought it was possible. Yeah, the first thing that impressed me was the fact that, A, he had this many Lego gears that he could generate this Google-to-one gear ratio. I'm I'm shocked that anybody outside of the factory had this many just sort of lying around and used to, you know, to be able to do this. And then on top of that, the thing seems to function just fine, uh, although... You know, the reality is that probably by the time you get a third of the way through that gear train, the early gears would probably have melted by the time any of them have moved a, you know, a significant amount, sort of a third of the way through the gear train. So it's uh, obviously entirely impractical. Uh, it's not going to last that long. But yeah, it's uh, it's an impressive little machine that this guy built. And certainly seems to be uh, popular with the general populace as well, because within the first day that it was launched, it garnered over a million views. Yeah. Obviously people are, people are fascinated by seeing these ridiculous gear trains. Um, I don't know, maybe, uh, maybe that's what I need to do to, to kickstart my, my, uh, YouTube channel. Although, uh, it would also help for me to actually finish a couple of more videos because <laughs> any, anyone out there who, uh, maybe has checked out my YouTube videos since we talked about it a couple of episodes ago now, um, we'll have noticed that I haven't actually gotten my uh, straight line engine video up. I do have my intro video up, but not the straight line engine video. So, yeah, I'm uh, I'm like six and a half weeks behind on that. So, yeah, I, I've got to get get to get something done with that. But maybe maybe this is what I need to make to uh, to really kickstart my channel. You'll get there eventually. So, if you were to make a Google to one gear ratio, how would you go about it? Uh, that's a good question. I'm not sure. I don't like the, uh, I understand exactly why he's doing it, but I, I'm not a big fan of the worm gear setup for it. I don't find it as interesting or as um, uh, like as visually interesting to do the worm gear uh, setup. I, I think in some ways it's kind of cheating too because you can get a really massive gear reduction using worm gears. I think it's a little more interesting to try and do it out of um, out of something else. I would probably try and do them out of steel, uh, and I would probably try and cross out the wheels in a in a more interesting pattern than sort of your standard, um, you know, your standard patterns from watches and clocks and stuff like that. So maybe do something that's a little bit more a little bit more appealing. Yeah, there certainly are a, a lot of gears going on here. So you'd be uh, making those gears for for quite some time. I think it's it's easier to <laughs> pop pop these out of a, an injection molding machine in plastic than yeah. it would be to, to cut all these out of. Out of steel, yeah, it certainly would be. Although one of the one of the advantages of cutting them out of steel is that you can gang them up and and cut a whole pile at the same time. So there are some things you can do in terms of fabrication to to sort of speed it up. But yes, you're still probably talking about you know six months or whatever of cutting gears. I was blown away by the the, the sheer number of, of Lego Technics gears being used here, and I, I think it's a testament to the the age we live in now too that he was even able to make this. Because I think if you were to buy enough Lego sets to to pull this off, uh, unless you were a, a very well-to-do person, you'd probably very quickly go into the red. I could see spending tens of thousands of dollars on Lego sets uh, to pull this off. Uh, but thanks to sites like Bricklink, you're able to to go and just buy these gears and, mm. and whatnot for for pennies. And uh, I mean, the shipping is going to obviously add up, but you don't actually have to go out and buy entire Lego sets because even just to get those yellow racks that he used to make uh, two of the the larger gears where he actually introduces an extra tooth in in air quotes by actually leaving a slightly wider gap between two of the racks that he's uh, attaching together, uh, those 
came in at this giant um, bucket excavator Lego Technics set, and they were just introduced a few years ago. And uh, that that set was close to four thousand pieces, and, and was quite pricey at the time that it was released. Yeah, it was that that was impressive seeing that uh, that large yellow gear ring that he had. Although it, at speed, it clearly was not happy about having the missing tooth. Mm-mm. You could hear it complaining every time it, it crossed over that. So if he set it up properly, it, it shouldn't hit that for you know, I don't know, a couple million years. So hopefully, it won't uh, won't cause too many problems. And a neat thing about it as well, the way that he set it up is he actually more or less built a clock at the very beginning to, in order to to kick off this, this chain sequence of gears working in tandem to to build up to this ratio. And he's starting off with, uh, I believe it was a, a minute hand, and then he introduces a, a second and then the hour hand as well. And uh, that was neat to see too. I'm actually inspired to, to perhaps try and, and make that at some point with my my son and my daughter. So I think we, we may have enough Technics gears to pull that off. And uh, for for a very brief time in there, I thought maybe if I were to splurge to buy those yellow racks, that I, I might be able to, to do the Google to one gear ratio, but the, the gears just keep on coming after that. And uh, there's no no chance I'm ever going to outlay that kind of cash for all those, yeah. those Lego gears to try and replicate this. Yeah, even if you're just buying the gears individually, it's there. there's a... There's some serious uh, outlay of cash there to get those gears in place. Yeah, I think if I think one of the things if I were going to fabricate something like this, I would certainly give it a way of indicating just how much it's moved in the time that it's been running, so that it's obvious. Because of course, one of the problems with this is that if you come back a hundred years from now, you have no idea how much of the original gear train has moved since it started. So I, I would certainly want it to have some kind of an indicator, whether they're just simple hands that start pointing up and then start to move as they go by, uh, you know, something like that. I, I would certainly want to do something along those lines just to make it obvious that, that this is, in fact, still alive and that some of the later parts of the gear train have, in fact, begun to move. I think in, in 100 years, the little minifigure there at the very end probably wouldn't even have moved enough to take up the play in the the gear ratios oh no the multiple lifetimes you would still not have taken up the backlash and this goes back to that um the the one that we talked about the last time where the last gear was embedded in a piece of concrete you know you're still talking about thousands and thousands of years before you've taken up the backlash to even start to think about the fact that 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 piece of concrete is going to start to affect the the operation of the gear train Mm mm-hmm and a fun little fact as well, the little Ruhla clock that he, he drops in there to compare to the, the motion of the minute hand. The crown for the very first German watch to ever enter space and, and orbit the Earth belongs to Ruhla. So it's neat to see that that little clock drop in there as well in the video. Yeah, so if anybody else has find, uh, found a Google to one or any kind of other crazy gear ratio, uh, we'd be interested in seeing it. Uh, they're kind of fun to see what people are doing and See some of the innovative ways that uh, that people have done it. We'll see what uh, see what other people have come up with. I'm sure that the, this won't be the last one that we see. Another neat Lego video you've sent me since the lockdown began was a tensegrity structure, which seemed to kick off a whole slew of of creativity within the the Lego sphere on the internet with people building all manner of of tensegrity structures. And uh, this is a quite a neat little build. I'll be sure to link to that in the show notes as well. Uh, this is something I've seen before, but I've never seen as a Lego build. So it was kind of nice to see the principles being shown off there. And, and this is something you, when I sent it to you, you said you had uh, you had built one with your kids, right? Mm, yeah, we did. Uh, since schools have closed, I've been teaching my my son because he's no longer allowed to go to school because of COVID nineteen, and uh, the manner in which we've been going about our learning and explorations of the world has been to theme each week. And that's proven to be be very effective in both stoking interest and, and creativity. And the week that I saw this video pop up it was actually the, the same week that we were studying and exploring gravity together. So this was an absolutely perfect Lego build to, to tie in with that. Uh, so we made a tensegrity structure together of our, our own. It's uh, it's nice to see that you're that you're doing that and and introducing them to some weird principles that that uh, most people, even as adults, have no idea what they are, 
uh, you know, I've never, never played around with. Yeah. So Tamara and I have also been talking about odd things with different physical properties that don't seem to be uh, sort of normal. And one of them is uh, talking about Rulo triangles and Rulo tetrahedrons. There's another name for them, but I can't remember what it is off the top of my head. And they're objects that have a constant width, regardless of where on their circumference you you look at them. Uh, and typically we think of a wheel or a circle or a sphere as being the objects that have a constant width, regardless of where you look at them. But a Rulo triangle also does that. And uh, it's, a, it's a bit of an odd shape that uh, people have seen, but they don't necessarily think about as being something of constant width or that it has a sort of a, an odd property. And it's kind of cool because if you print a or make a solid that's designed as a, as a Rouleau solid, you can actually use it as a bearing underneath a board or underneath a, you know, or on a, on a, a bike or something like that. And you would think that just looking at it, that the, you know, the board is going to go up and down and it's going to, it's going to change in its height, but it won't because the low triangle has a constant width the entire way around it. So these are, these are kind of neat little objects that uh, if you've never seen them again, it's sort of a fun finding these, these things in the world that are, that uh, sort of defy your uh, expectations of what they should be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I find them absolutely fascinating. I'm a, a big fan of, of the Rouleau Triangle and various ways it's been used over the years. And uh, it, this is something we, we've technically actually talked about on the show before, although that, that episode never did get published about uh, the screwdrivers. And, uh, Rolex actually employs a, a Rouleau Triangle in their their newer screw heads that are in their, their 32 series of calibers, like the, the 3255 and the, the 3235. And uh, the reason being that it allows you to apply a constant force to the, the screw heads. There's there's no deformation of the, the screw head that you might find in in other, like, say, slotted screws and whatnot. And it's also a, a deterrent from people uh, messing around where, where the company would rather them not be be messing around just there's so many neat use cases for for the rulo triangles and, and rulo tetrahedrons i mean you can even drill a square hole using a, a rulo triangle and uh, that that's one of the the neater use cases that, that i've seen yeah the this drilling the square hole is is one of those uh one of those neat little party tricks that that i've shown people before and it, it sort of blows people's minds so that's that's kind of a fun a fun one so have you 3D printed uh, any Rulo tetrahedrons for you and Tamara? I, I haven't gotten around to it yet, although that's something that we should probably do and um, and and play with. I, You know, it's funny because you talk about using them as a, um, as a driver shape for a screw head, and I hadn't even thought about doing that. Um, but I've actually been uh, designing a wobble brooch for broaching out uh, things like screw heads, fastener heads in different shapes, and you can do anything you want you can do hexagons or squares or ovals or whatever uh, maybe i should uh, uh risk the wrath of uh of rolex and and maybe make some uh screw heads that are the same uh, same shape i don't know if rolex has patented their rouleau triangle headed screws but uh i imagine they they have but perhaps you could come up with some sort of twist on it if you were to to make your own or you could come up with some other similar shape although it's hard to beat the Arulo triangle for for its simplicity in in this respect so covid-19 has certainly had a an impact on the way we're going about our, our day-to-day lives and the things we've been learning about and in my case teaching my kids about taking on the, the role of both teacher and and parent and and friend too when it comes to playing with lego uh, but last episode we we touched on the the potential impacts and and ramifications of COVID-19 for the watch industry. And there was a, a neat article published recently on, on wallpaper.com interviewing a whole bunch of, of higher-ups within the industry just about uh, their outlook and, and how this time has been for them. That, that shed some, I would say, some positive light on the situation in, in most ways. Uh, but there, there are darker corners of, of the industry that uh, aren't taking the, this time quite so well you sent a, a article from swiss info on some of the 
watch brands that have already been affected by COVID-19 and, um, and the slowdown in the industry. And uh, out of the 300-odd watch brands that function out of Switzerland, uh, a dozen have already filed for bankruptcy. So this is clearly having an impact right now on you know on the industry and it's it's just going to keep keep coming along i suspect uh, i don't think this is going to be the last that uh, that we hear of this mm-hmm. there's just no hard numbers or, or facts within the article this is coming from a an industry insider olivier muller and uh, he's predicting that he thinks up, up to 60 of the as you said 300 or so brands who operate from within switzerland are, are likely going to to be filing for bankruptcy by the time this all passes over. And then on top of the actual brands filing for bankruptcy, Richemont has already said that they're seeing a significant drop off in their revenue. And I think they're they're predicting something like a, a 67% drop in revenue over the next couple of years. That's an unbelievable drop for a, an organizing that, organization that size. There are, they'll obviously need to make some significant changes to their organization in order to survive that because a 67% drop in revenue is just not something that, that most organizations support. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's not just a, a forecast. They, they have posted a 67% drop in, in profits for the year 2020 so far versus 2019. It's just you know, staggering, really. Absolutely. It's, it, is, uh, it is terrifying to see just how... And I know speaking with friends in the jewelry industry, there's been a massive drop off in uh, in sales and and revenue there. Uh, most of them are, you know, are down thirty forty percent on the year already, with really not a lot of prospect of things picking up between now and the end of the year. So we'll see what how this plays out. I I, uh, I suspect that uh, a lot of businesses are not going to survive this, even with support from the government and and sort of bridge loans and whatnot that are uh, that are being made available. It's I, I just don't see how how most of this industry survives, which, you know, I think if, if you can survive this, I think it'll be tough to, to sort of get through these couple of years. But if you can actually make it through these couple of years, I, I suspect that the landscape is going to be pretty, pretty open for, for in terms of competition. I, I can't see there being a lot of uh, competition coming your way from existing brands. Yeah, if the, the predictions hold true, and, and indeed, if given some of the numbers we're seeing already, uh, the, the industry is more than just being decimated. Uh, it's a significant hit to business. And uh, if I recall correctly, in uh, one of the articles, there are the number of job losses uh, that have been posted within the, the Swiss industry has actually been higher within the watch industry than it, than it was all the way back in the quartz crisis. That's terrifying to think of. Uh, I, you know, obviously the, the industry survived the, the quartz crisis and hopefully they hopefully they can do it again. The consolidation of the the industries maybe is going to be of some benefit to it, just because the you know a couple of larger conglomerations can can probably survive better than a lot of smaller uh, companies. But that's also a bit terrifying because it means that um, you know they really won't have a lot of competition afterwards. So hopefully it it's not as bad as we think it is, and and the uh, the industry is able to recover a little bit. Yeah, I would imagine that. Most of those statistics uh, are including employees who are just on temporary furlough, and, and they'll have their jobs ready and, and waiting for them once the the factories and, and manufacturers are able to ramp things up and back to to full steam, which is something that I imagine is going to take some some time to to do as well. I mean, speaking here in Canada, their their government's now talking about extending their temporary wage subsidies for workers who've been affected by the COVID-19 virus, and I imagine it's probably going to be the same pretty much in every country. I, I may find out a little bit uh, sooner rather than later. I, I just sent off an email this morning to Eterna asking them about details of purchasing movements because I, I want to be able to purchase some movements this year in order to uh, to get my first series of watches out. And uh, I'll be curious to find out what their projections are in terms of being able to actually deliver on these movements. It's I'm not going to be you know, ordering hundreds of movements or anything like that. But so it's, you know, my order will be pretty simple. But at the same time, uh, if there's nobody in this, in the factory making parts, if there's nobody there to, to assemble them, uh, you know, who knows how long that'll take. So I'll, I'll be curious to see what they come back with in terms of, uh, in terms of expected delivery times and, and when they, uh, when they think they'll be getting back to work. 
while most establishments are temporarily closed at the moment, uh, things haven't stopped for you over at the studio. You guys are still going full force over there, and that's in part due to the fact there's only two of you, and, and you have a substantial amount of space to, to operate within to, to keep a safe working distance. You alluded earlier in the, the episode that if you were to make a, a Google-to-one gear ratio that you would make uh, all your gears out of, out of steel and uh, have fanciful cuts and, and profiles that you wouldn't normally see in, say, a, a watch or, or clock or other mechanical device. And, and I imagine a, a large part of that uh, inspiration has probably come from the fact that your plasma cutter is now up and running. It's nice that we finally got this plasma cutter. I, I have to say the the biggest thing that's affected us at the studio in, in this lockdown has been the delivery times from uh, from shipping companies. Um, the the last package of that shipment, I think it was six packages in the shipment, and um, the final one took them a month to get it from the west end of the city to to us in the center of the city. So now uh, that's that's been our biggest delays in terms of um, in terms of this shutdown. But we finally got the the last package uh, last week, and we got the uh, the plasma cutter assembled over a couple of days. And uh, let me tell you, I am thoroughly impressed with what a plasma cutter can do. In my case, with it, with the the gears, I would probably, you know, I probably wouldn't try and cut them on on the plasma cutter. It's not really a, a delicate uh, instrument in terms of making watch gears, but um, in terms of uh, being able to quickly fabricate parts for around the shop, it is unbelievable how effective it is at. Uh, at being able to turn around designs and actually be able to get them in solid steel. Uh, we, we've been shocked by just how effective it is. I wasn't really imagining cutting watch gears with a plasma cutter. I, I don't don't see that happening. I, I was thinking more uh, uh, slightly larger than, than clock size and that you would just do the profiling of the the spokes on the the plasma cutter and then stack all your, your gears together and rip the teeth out on, on the lathe. Yeah, I'm still not sure that I would do that. I think unless they were quite large. Um, I, I mean, maybe if this is a you know a large um, installation piece to go in the front window or something like that, I could see that. But uh, even then, it's not it's not ideal for for some of that. Um, certainly not not as precise as I'd like to see for for what that is. But yeah, it, it's um it's an amazing machine in terms of what it can do and and how quickly it can cut out parts. The other day, we picked up a, a saw for cutting steel faster uh, some of our tubes steel faster it looks very much like a miter saw and uh, i happen to have an old miter saw stand that uh had a wood saw on it and now that's on a workbench that's uh, mounted to the table or to the wall so um it's this this miter saw stand is unused so we thought hey let's put this new saw onto there uh but the you know things didn't quite line up properly and the, and it wasn't really designed to to mount to it like the um the wood miter saw did and so we thought, well, let's just make a plate for an interface between the two. And honestly, it took me longer to find fasteners to attach this saw to the, the plate than it did for Rich to model the plate and then cut it out on the plasma cutter. It, it only took him a few minutes to do that. And it was um, unbelievable just how effective it was. And, and it was accurate and perfect exactly the first time. And we didn't have to go back and make any changes to it. So uh, yeah, it's um, it's unbelievable how how effective this thing is, and the fact that it can tear through, you know, three sixteenths thick steel, and it doesn't really think about it. Like it's doing that at a couple hundred inches a minute is is unbelievable. That's incredible. I've not done anything that that fast with a a machine from from idea to finished product. I don't I don't think ever. I mean, the closest would be like cardboard prototypes on a, a laser cutter, but that, even then, that, that's wild. Yeah, it it really is, and and I'm in the same boat. I haven't normally when I'm when I'm sitting there, it takes me quite a while to to sit there and model it, and then okay, now I'm going to mill it, and you know the milling time is significant, or you know whatever it is, the the printing time is significant. This thing is just yeah, like get her done. It's uh, it's incredible how fast it can uh, it can tear through your design. So. Uh, we're currently in the process of designing a bunch of other things that we can uh, print on it easily. A welding table is is high on my list of things to make because we uh, we desperately need a welding table in the uh, in the studio. So uh, I suspect this week that will be one of the one of the tables that I end up working on this week is uh, trying to get that welding table done. 
I've never used a, a plasma cutter. Is the the bed on the the cutter a consumable item, or or what prevents the plasma cutter from from tearing through the surface that you're actually cutting on? That's a good question. So the maybe for people who don't know what a plasma cutter is, um, it uses a very high current that is um, pushed out of the cutter head by a swirling compressed air stream. Uh, so there's actually a um, a nozzle that's in there that spins the uh, the metal, or sorry, spins the compressed air, and so you're you're putting the compressed air out at let's say seventy five psi, something like that, eighty psi, and it's forcing um, this you know the spiraling airstream through the high current, and it forces out this um, this plasma stream basically, which is sort of the same kind of temperature as the surface of the sun, like it's thousands and thousands of degrees and it just melts any metal that's underneath it but at the same time it also melts any metal that's underneath it for several inches and uh, obviously that's problematic when it comes to trying to put this on top of something so the way that it's held is that there's uh, uh, vertical slats that you put your your material onto and those vertical slats do get cut and chewed up but because they're vertical and you're just running a, you know, the cutter torch through it. You know, and I guess the the kerf on the cutter is maybe a millimeter or two in diameter. It's not that it's not that large. Because of that, your you know your slats survive for quite a while, uh, and then the slats are also on a waterbed. So you've got a tank that's underneath it that has a couple of inches of water, and you know one of the things that ends up happening is this does generate a fair bit of steam just because you've got this plasma stream hitting the water and vaporizing it as well. So it's a combination of those slats, which are consumable, and then the water, which of course is easily replaceable because it, it is getting steamed off uh, as you're using it. So yeah, it's uh, it's not the cleanest of processes. You, you certainly wouldn't want to put this in your uh, in your watchmaking studio uh, because the, the gases and the you know the steam and everything that's coming off of it is uh, is not particularly pleasant, but it's pretty amazing how fast this thing will just vaporize metal underneath it. So did you cut out the metal frame under your watchmaker's bench on the plasma cutter as well? Uh, no, that one I actually made out of um, out of steel tube. So I just purchased some some two inch square steel tube, and I was able to you know to, to just drill and and cut the you know the parts using sort of regular hand tools, just because that's that was the most appropriate way of doing it. It was the fastest way of doing it. And then welded up the the steel frame using a you know just using a MIG welder. So that was that was a little bit faster to do that way. Uh, but we are thinking about making the legs for our new kitchen island out of it. Uh, we've got a nice piece of live edge walnut that we're making the kitchen island from, and we need some legs for it. And so we're uh, we're currently playing with some design ideas, and we'll end up cutting those out of uh, out of steel on the plasma cutter for sure because it'll be uh, nice and fast to be able to do it from there. Certainly sounds like a, a great tool to have in your arsenal. Yeah, it really is. It's um, you know we've talked of in the past about force multipliers and you know where things like um, CNC machines and um, and three D printers and whatnot are able to allow a single person to quickly fabricate parts that they wouldn't otherwise be able to. And this is certainly a thing that can do that, especially once you're once you're familiar with welding and you can you can weld those things together. As I said, I'm in the process of designing this welding table, and it's just using a tab and slot design so that I can quickly, uh, you know, sort of slot everything together and then weld it in place. And uh, this makes it trivial to do. It's, you know, it's just so fast to be able to cut out those slots and cut the appropriate tab so that you can, you can slot the whole thing together. And, um, and then it, you know, just make sure that everything is square as you're welding it and you're good to go. So it's, uh, yeah, it's rather impressive. I should also say that while, uh, you know, we've been talking about the CNC version of this plasma cutter, we do also have a handheld one as well. And even just having that handheld plasma cutter is incredibly useful. You know, being able to to quickly part off an object or uh, cut out a little corner that you need for a, for a part. Uh, you know, something, let's say you're going to weld a plate to the bottom of a, a leg and uh, you need to, you know, You've got some scrap metal sitting around, you weld it on, and then you need to trim it off. 
it's it's so fast to be able to just take the plasma cutter, use that torch to just slice off the the excess instead of trying to use a a cutoff wheel on an angle grinder or something like that, which is uh, uh, slower and messier and and whatnot. This is it just seconds. It's it's sort of the closest thing you can you can imagine to having an actual lightsaber. Uh, you know, it's obviously it doesn't extend out as far as a lightsaber does, but it's exactly that kind of power when you're when you're working on it. Uh, these torches are rated up to I think a half inch of steel, and it's uh it's amazing watching it just tear through that that half inch steel. Why settle for one when you can have two? Well, you know, it's, sometimes it's handy to have uh, have both going, right? You can. Uh, oh, absolutely, yeah. Also means that we don't have to disconnect the the one that's on the uh, on the CNC machine to be able to then use it by hand. It's it's amazing when you when you start setting things up so that you don't have to tear down setups to be able to then go off and do other work. It's amazing how much faster you can get to work. Uh, as as you alluded to, I've been working on this new watchmaker's bench, so I've been uh, making a, a walnut top for for that. And between having a jointer and a drum sander and um, you know thickness planer and everything readily available and all at hand and uh, and set up all the time I was able to build that tabletop in a couple of days the last one that I did like that took me weeks just because you know you'd have to I, you know I had to set up outside with my table saw cut everything you know then set up a, a workbench outside to glue it all up and hope that it doesn't rain while I'm you know, while I'm doing all the glue up and everything. And it took me weeks to put together my last uh, bench top. And this one, I was able to get it, get it all up and running in, in a couple of days. Yeah, I absolutely understand it and agree with the, the logic behind behind it. And, and having that, that sort of system set up and in place, it reduces the friction in, in so many ways. And you're just able to, to move that much more quickly and, and get to a final product that much more quickly. Uh, years ago... Um, Adam Savage referred to it on on one of you know the tested videos as basically a hot glue gun for steel, and it really is, and it's worth getting a decent one. I, I've had cheap MIG welders in the past, and they've been incredibly frustrating to deal with. But uh, once you get a decent MIG welder, and uh, you know it's just so fast to be able to to knock things together. I I knocked together a couple of benches for uh, some of my tools. I've got you know grinders and stuff like that, like tool and cutter grinders, and and a few other things in the shop which uh, desperately needed some some benches and I could not knock together these benches in wood as fast as I was able to knock them together in steel you know it was just very quick cuts on the on the saw weld them together grind some of the welds down where necessary and away you go it was uh it was incredible what you could do in a in a couple of hours with a with the these technology so if you're if you're setting up a shop and you're looking at what sorts of things you you should be putting in there even if you're not planning on doing a lot of metal work, once you have uh, some of these tools, it's amazing how fast you can start fabricating uh, benches for yourself. You know, parts for parts for things that you're trying to do, whether they're they might be fixture parts or whatever. It's it's pretty amazing how quickly you can take advantage of these things to extend what you're able to do in the shop and and expand the, the sort of the tooling that you have available to you in the shop. Yeah, MIG, MIG welder is another tool that I can't say I've, I've ever used myself, but I, I could see the the parallel there to, to being like a, a hot glue gun. Well, maybe once we uh, we get out of lockdown, we'll have to have you over to um, show you the wonders of hot metal. It'll be an excuse for, for you to whip out a quick video too. You can just show me failing miserably at my, <laughs> my at very first weld. Uh huh. Yeah, quick video. I'm not I'm not sure those two things go together. Come on, you should be able to to humiliate me in under a minute. It's the quick video part that's the that's difficult to do. the The humiliation part, I'm sure, is something we can we can arrange. But the whipping together a quick video is uh, is not something that I seem to be capable of capable of these days. Uh, hopefully, it'll be like water skiing, and I I get up on my first try. <laughs> uh, honestly, it, I was shocked when you get a decent MIG welder, and uh, and one of the things when I say decent MIG welder, I mean something that has uh, a digital panel on it that you can easily set up the the welder for the particular material that you're trying to trying to work on it's amazing how all of a sudden it just flows and it just um, magically works properly for you there's, there's nothing more frustrating than a poorly configured welder and it's I, I mean unless you're willfully ignoring the setup it's it's very difficult to configure this welder wrong which is uh, which makes things 
very, very easy when it comes to uh, getting everything right and, and then getting passable results from it. I certainly look forward to to getting out of lockdown and finally being able to head over to the studio and, and see all the transformations that have taken place there for you guys. And then an atelier that was neat to get a, a peek inside an area I haven't ever and probably won't ever again have a chance to get a peek inside of was uh, seeing the the artwork that uh, sits behind Kari Lennon when, when he's at his desk. Yeah, his home office is uh, is entertaining, and I, I guess from the story that he told at the uh, the end of last week's time for a pint, it sounds like the previous owner of the house was a painter, and had decided to paint the wall in that room with uh, a Tintin uh, mural, and uh, he Kari decided to leave it up, which is uh, which was great, and so he had this uh, this great background behind him in uh, last week's time for a pint. It was certainly a hit in the comments there. Yeah, and uh, and then on top of that, the the watches that uh, that Kari brought along were were just fabulous. It was uh, it was nice to see some some different things coming out of it, and uh, you know stuff that that obviously somebody like uh, like Kari is going to have access to, but uh, most most people are, are just not going to be able to uh, to get uh, get access to some of the watches that he has. Yeah, it was really neat to to see those pieces that he brought along. He had a, a very early Sarpaneva watch that uh, mm-hmm. had a very three dimensional dial to it. And, uh, I really enjoyed the look of that. The hands are are no match for the later Sarpaneva watches, but uh, the the case and, and the crown and the dial all speak very heavily of the Sarpaneva design language. You can tell that those traits were there very early on within the, the birth of his brand. Yeah, certainly that dial was, the second I saw it, I, I recognized the design language and it was it was really nice to see. I, I'm intrigued by the dial design and, and the the technique. I, I say technique, I don't even know what he how he designed that dial. I have to go back and take a look at it again. Um, but the... Uh, the three dimensionality of that dial was fabulous. It was uh, a very, very bold design, very, um, uh, very strong, and I it was it was light, really nice to see. Uh, the hands were not as uh, you know not as uh, strongly designed. I don't think as uh, as uh, the rest of the watch, and and certainly the newer ones are are much nicer. Uh, but then the case itself, I, I mean, you could that case was incredible. I mean, that, that thing was got to be able to withstand a, a nuclear blast. It was uh, <laughs> incredible how, how durable that, that case is. To be fair to Sarpaneva, the, the hands w- weren't designed at all. So, so that's why they're, they, they, they don't speak to, to his uh, strong suits later on when it, when it comes to the hands. They, they're just hands that were more than likely just purchased from a, a material house or, or a supplier. Uh, but yeah, that case. Oh my goodness, that that's certainly not a not a case that's going to to pass the the cuff test. One aspect of the the case that uh, that I found quite interesting is is the way that uh, it's actually fit together. There's no case bag on it. The movements and the and the dial and everything are, are placed in through the front. Uh, but the the shape of the case and everything else, you really question how how is this all put together? How is that back of the case just one contiguous surface and there's no visible seam? on the sides uh, and it turns out that the the bezel portion of the watch which has a nice high polish on it uh, contrasting with the brushed finish on the, the actual case portion itself uh, the means by which those two components are affixed together is actually behind the the strap so between the lugs there you'd actually have to take the strap off and there's screws there that, that are holding the case and the bezel together so that was a, a neat insight from Votilainen as well into the the construction of that particular piece. Yeah, it was interesting to see and, and interesting to talk about how how Kari talked about it and in terms of how how it's assembled. I I'm not sure that it's a it's going to sort of light the watch world on fire in terms of its uh, its uh, manufacturing techniques, but it was uh, it's certainly effective the way that uh, the way that it was built. And as you say, it, there's no way that it's going to pass the cuff test. That's uh, uh, that's definitely a watch to wear when you're you're out on a weekend with uh, with a short sleeve t-shirt on or something because it's uh, yeah uh, any any decent shirt's going to get destroyed by that thing. Yeah, it's pieces like this that break from the norm that help to push the industry forward. Whether or not this particular 
piece and everything that it's about gets uh, adopted in, in any manner uh, directly. Uh, it's this sort of experimentation that is, is what catalyzes change and, and progress. Absolutely. And fellow Canadian James Thompson was, was in on the call uh, as well. And uh, he's known as the Black Badger on, on Instagram and Twitter and, and elsewhere. He's dropping some hints that he, he would love to, to get together with Poti Lennon to, to loom up one of his pieces someday. Yeah, I'm not sure that that's, uh, that's Kari's style, but um, it would certainly be an interesting collaboration between the two if it happened. I think if, if Kari were to, to take him up on it, I would I would love to see him just do something completely different and, and off-brand from what he would normally do. And just something very futuristic on the outside, but then when you, you flip it over and see that and the backside and the movement to have that impeccable level of finish that Botilainen is known for, uh, just jump out at you. I, I think that'd be a, a real under-the-radar sort of timepiece. Well, not that any of, of James Thompson's timepieces are, are under-the-radar. <laughs> no, as subtle and, and under the radar is not uh, not really how you describe James and his work. And and James had some great stories as well. I, I mean, the the story about his watch was uh, was good, and it was obviously a, a fairly personal story. It wasn't wasn't an exceptional watch from a you know from a collection point of view, but it was uh, it was nice to hear the story behind that. But he also had some uh, few other interesting stories, and and uh, <laughs> like the time that he was working on uh, on nuclear submarines in Australia. It was uh, it was rather entertaining, so it's it's certainly worthwhile going back and watching that if uh, if uh, only for some of the entertaining stories that uh, that come out of these guys. Mm-hmm. And Chris Mann brought a, along a, a lovely old Seiko as well, which is in incredible condition given the age of it, and uh, he had somehow managed to to get that through a gentleman who imports camera gear of all things. Yeah, as as Chris says, he he likes to uh, to sort of troll at the the bottom end of eBay, and uh, every once in a while you get a, a gem out of it, and that's certainly what this was. I'm a, I'm a fan of some of those Seikos from the the 60s and 70s, and uh, certainly the the design language and and style of those uh, those 60s and 70s Seiko watches is just fabulous. The uh, the dials in particular are just unbelievable, and uh, it was nice to see that that particular piece. Um, and as you said, the, the condition on it is remarkable. Uh, I've, I've seen and handled a bunch of watches from that era and, uh, they're often not in nearly that good condition just because they were everyday wear watches. And so they were abused and banged up against the, you know, the sides of, of, uh, subway cars and scratched and, you know, it's, uh, they, they had a life and they, they were obviously well used, but this watch was clearly not used anywhere near that much. So it was uh, it was nice to see a, a case that was that sharp and that clean as as well as the dial. And generally speaking, each guest on Time for a Pint brings just one watch to to show off. But uh, Kari bent the rules a, a, a little bit, and and he did bring a, a second watch to complement the Sarpaneva that he brought. And this was a, quite a special piece as well. Was the the number zero prototype, more or less, uh, of a perpetual calendar from Urban Jorgensen? I n- noticed in the the chat there uh, as the conversation was was going on that, that you quite liked the the layout of the the day and the the date windows on on this piece. Yeah, that was one of the intriguing things. I you know I'm sure that I've come across this watch before. I, I'm sure that it's come you know that it's sort of come through my feed, but. One of the problems when you see so many watches coming across your feed, and, and especially when you're looking at them on a smaller screen, you know, if they're, you know, let's say they're maybe a, a mediocre Instagram photo or or whatever, it's often difficult to notice some of these these nice little details, the, the nice touches that are in these designs. And in this case, the day and, and month windows are off at, at nine and three, just like you, you would, you know, you would expect them to be. They move them just above that center line, so that you can still see the markers at nine and three, but you you don't get, um, but the the actual day and and month and whatnot indicators are above that. Those little windows are above it, and it's it's nice because you you're still getting them horizontal, so you're still able to read them uh, like you normally would. So it's not as if they're you know, so like some of these designs where they're at, uh, let's say, half past four, where they're off on an angle, they're off on a, a 45 degree, 
these are still horizontal, uh, but they're because they're north of that, uh, you know, that line, that center line. It sort of elevates the the visual of, of feel, the visual weight of that dial, and uh, lifts it up a little bit from the from the bottom of the watch, and it's uh, it's a, a really nice really nice touch. And I I can imagine that it, it probably wouldn't be too difficult to do. Because uh, I expect the the wheels are probably the same underneath. They've just printed them so that they're, uh, um, you know, so they read properly in that slightly elevated window position. Um, so it's certainly possible to do with just about any of these watches. Uh, but it's it's not something that you see a lot of people do, and it's a one of those nice little details, uh, one of those nice little design touches that you see that uh, that makes it stand out. And and as we've talked about in the past. I, neither of us are really particularly big fan of um, date windows on watches. I find them uh, far too busy most of the time. And because they're sort of all the same, I find they tend not to really be that interesting. And uh, this is nice because you, you get that, you know, you get that uh, date window in there and you get that extra little detail that uh, makes it stand out a little bit and, and changes the feel of that dial balance. And that's, uh, that's something that's, that's tough to find on, on watches. You don't, you don't get a lot of that, um, you know, the sort of little, little changes that that actually improve the the watch a lot of the changes that you see eh, they're they're sort of mediocre and questionable as to whether they're actually improving the the quality of the of the design or not but this was definitely a nice touch if i accidentally said uh day and, and date back there uh I, that was completely unintentional I, I blame rolex for that one their day date i i would really love to see under that the dial of, of this piece and see exactly how the the wheels were laid out and and whether they were printed in, in an offset manner or whether they just happened to be set there be, because that's where they are running axially and whether the positioning of the day of the week and the month are actually in line with the, the center of rotation of the discs or whether they have been, been printed offset, uh, as you mentioned. And the back of this watch too, I would have, would have loved to see the, the movements. This is one of those watches I'd love to see the movement under the dial for sure. Um, but when I, you know, I sort of did a little bit of rough, um, rough sketching the other day about, you know, sort of thinking about this and thinking about how I would accomplish it if I was just using a stock movement. And I, I think you could probably get away with it. Um, you know, assuming that the dials that those, uh, the, the day and the, the month they're running on are large enough. Um, and I, and I'm pretty sure that they're, they're going to be big enough just because of the, uh, the size of the print and what you're putting on there. Uh, I'm pretty sure that they that you could get away with it without having the uh, you know those discs sort of axially um, above the the that sort of east west line in the uh, in the movement. So I suspect you probably could get away with it. Now whether that's what they actually did here or not, who knows? Uh, we'd have to see under the dial to be able to know that. But I'm pretty sure you could get away with it on this watch um, if you were careful with it. And it would certainly help if you, even if you just saw the the discs turning over. Um, from day or month, then uh, that would also probably give you a pretty pretty good indication of what's going on there. Mm-hmm. And I'd have to go back and, and listen to the, the recording, but uh, this was all, all going on live as, as we were catching it. Uh, but I, I believe he mentioned it was uh, based on an FPK caliber, so we could probably just do a little digging and actually find the, the caliber itself. But uh, what really delights me about the Jurgensen's work, and uh, Kari has actually done some work for them in the past, which is why he was able to to get this piece is just the level of finish uh, on the movements and both on the the backside that the, the client or the owner of the watch is, is sometimes able to see through a display back but also on the dial side too the parts of the watch that the the owner would, would never see just a level of, of detail and and finish and care that the watchmakers pour into those pieces yeah, I, I suspect the fact that it's based on a standard caliber means that it's probably this is probably a design choice that they've made, and and they could have just as easily put it at the sort of the standard positions. But I'm really glad they didn't. And often, what you'll see too with a, a lot of perpetual calendars is that uh, these windows will be placed closer to the center of the dials, so or almost right next to each other. But this particular positioning, I find, gives the the dial quite a bit more levity and and lightness. It doesn't feel crowded in the the center there. Yeah, especially considering this, I think he said this is a 38 millimeter watch and it doesn't feel like that. Uh, I find that a lot of 38 millimeter watches with this much going on uh, tend to feel quite cramped and I find this one doesn't. And uh, And I suspect a lot of that has to do with uh, with these windows and just, just what they've managed to do with them. If they were to do what most people tend to do with these uh, 
these windows, I think it would probably feel really, uh, really claustrophobic. Now, one area of the movements where Kari did get into quite a bit of, of depth and in, in detail was with the manufacturing of the, the moon phase disc. And I imagine you must have found this quite interesting to, to listen along to, given that uh, one of your first timepieces is very likely to feature a moon phase complication. I've got to go back and listen to that a little a little bit more because I, I missed a couple of the details that he was talking about, but it sounds like this is a, a gold disc that they're using and that lends to some of the the color and and the sort of texture of the um of the dial. Uh so I, I need to go back and listen to that section again, but I'm I am curious to to hear what uh, what he had to say about it. Uh, because as you say, this first watch that I'm working on is a moon phase. And while I'll be doing a custom printed dial for mine so that it's uh, it's unique uh, to the uh, the standard Eterna movements that I'm using, uh, I'm always curious to see what other people are doing with their dials, uh, their, their sort of under dials like this. And uh, I don't think I'm going to change up what I plan on doing for these watches. But who knows, for some of my next ones, uh, I, I certainly have an idea or two for uh, maybe a li- very limited series watch that uh, that has a moon phase that's a bit different. And uh, this might lead to uh, to a couple of choices that I may change up with that. So, yeah, it'll. Uh, this is this is one of those things where I really wish that I could get my hands on this watch and and sort of take it apart and look at it in more detail. But that that's obviously not something that's going to happen anytime soon. Yeah, from my understanding of the way that Kari described it, uh, the disc isn't entirely gold. The the disc for the moon is is fully gold, and as are all the stars in it. It is actually a steel disc that they carved out some recesses into and then hammered gold into. They polished it all as one piece and then heat treated the the, the disc over top of a, a watchmaker's lamp in a, a tray of brass filings, uh, as as you do. And the steel took on that nice bluish hue that you can get with heat treatment, while the the gold, being a noble material, was not impacted in in any way. Uh, during that that heating process, and interestingly, that's not dissimilar to a uh, a design idea that I've already got for uh, for one of my future moon phase discs. So I, I'm yeah I'm I'll have to go back and listen to uh, to exactly what Kari said about that. That's encouraging because it, as I said, it uh, sort of leads me to believe that the the direction I was going with uh, with one of my next pieces is probably going to be uh, the right way to go with that. So if you haven't checked out Time for Pines virtual get togethers yet. Uh, I'd certainly encourage you to do so, whether you're able to, to tune in live in person or catch the recordings that are posted to YouTube later. Thanks for listening to Off Hours. You can find detailed show notes at offhours.show. If you'd like to keep up to date with the show, follow us on Twitter at Off Hours. John can be found on Twitter at Under the Loop, and Chris can be found on Twitter and Instagram at silver underscore hand.